Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm Francis Dernley, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, Dominic Nichols and I discuss yet another significant 24 hours in the military and diplomatic space, including the removal of General Sergei Sorovkin as commander of Russian forces and further developments on the vital question of tank deliveries to Ukraine. Plus, I talk to Russia expert Dr. Jade McGlynn about the tangled ways in which the war is becoming tied up with Russian national identity. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Putin's war in Ukraine has destabilized energy markets the world over. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom, and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 12th of January, day 323. And to discuss the most recent events in Ukraine and around the world, I'm joined once again by our associate editor, Dominic Nichols. I started by asking Dom about the latest news in the military space. Yep. Hi, Francis. So, yeah, two things. Firstly, we will I'll touch on and then we'll, we'll talk, unpack it a bit more later, I think. General Sergei Sorovkin, who's Russia's commander of the Ukraine theatre, so in charge of the whole uh, military event in Ukraine. He apparently has been demoted. He's been replaced in, in charge by uh, General Gerasimov. And so Gerasimov is in charge of the whole of the Russian military, all the armed forces. So it is extremely strange. Firstly, to double hat him. He's in charge of everything, everything now and everything in the future, procurement, research development, etc, etc. But also to give him a war to fight is um, is is uh, is very odd. Um, so we're not quite sure if he's going to be replaced in one in one or the other. Tellingly, Sorovkin has not been completely sacked. He's been made one of Gerasimov's three deputies and there's various reasons i think for that which we will we will talk about uh I'll talk about later but any any change in command and control especially at the very highest level is always disruptive to to a force now you might say a russian might say well that's good because it needs a good disrupting because it's not working at the moment but generally changing around the um, the the highest echelon the very highest echelons is is not is not a good thing but we'll talk about that a little bit later the second story is is on tanks. This has been going for a, for quite a while now, and uh, we've reported to a number ten spokesman talking about the possible gifting of of British Challenger two tanks to to Ukraine. Downing Street spokesman said, "quote We are accelerating our support to Ukraine with the kind of next generation military technology that will help to win this war." It is clear that battle tanks could provide a game changing capability to Ukrainians. End of quote. At which point we all wait for the for the punchline and wait for the sentence. Yes, and we're going to send loads of Challenger two, but that has yet to come. So 
whilst we are told there's planning to provide to provide tanks. Of course, the military loves planning. The military plans. It plans again. It has a contingency plan for the plan that didn't work and a contingency plan for that one. So it's always planning. So I'm sure it is entirely factually correct to say that the British Ministry of Defence is planning to send tanks to Ukraine. But whether that means or rather that does not automatically mean that the decision has been taken to send them. Now, I was chatting to a a very, very senior defence source last night and asking about the has any decision been made yet about sending Challenger 2. And the response I got was, quote, still to sort usual bollocks, unquote. So, you know, make of that what you will, but it's not a very clear and unequivocal, yes, we're going to send uh, Challenger 2. Now, yesterday, Poland's President Andrzej Duda, he met President Zelensky in Lviv in the west of the country alongside Lithuania's President Noseda. And after that meeting, Poland has said that they are happy to supply their Leopard 2s to Ukraine, albeit, but they need Germany's say-so. So Leopard 2 produced by Germany for various contractual reasons when it comes to the provision of lethal uh, military hardware. Now, the manufacturer can say where and when it, it can be used. We need to, as a sidebar, we need to have a discussion about Switzerland at some point um, uh, on this front. But uh, Poland and and others, for example, um, Finland, I think, have expressed uh, a willingness to send their, their challenges, uh, crikey, their Leopard 2s. But uh, it's coming down, there's pressure now on Germany to uh, to give the, the say-so uh, to allow that. Now, today, German Vice-Chancellor Robert Habeck has said, uh, quote, Germany should not stand in the way of other countries taking decisions to support Ukraine, independent of which decisions Germany takes, unquote. So leaving room there that whilst Germany might not want to send their own um, Leopard 2s, bearing in mind last Friday, Germany did promise 40 MARDA infantry fighting vehicles. So it's not as if they are as as lukewarm on the provision of military hardware as they might have been. Um, and as we criticised them, I criticised them months ago. So I don't think Germany's in that space. But there's there's room there for, for Germany to say, well, look, you know, we, we feel a little bit exposed by sending our own tanks, but we are we're willing to allow other other countries that own Leopard to uh, to send theirs. OK, might be dancing on the head of a pin, but it's um, it's progress. So I think those those are the two the two biggies. Um, a couple of other a couple of other items of news, if I may, Francis, before we dig into those. Um, related to the uh, to, related to Sorovkin being being uh, replaced, so there's still a lot of confusion around uh, Solodar, the town in the Donbass, which is just outside uh, Bakhmut, the big the big city there. Bakhmut is seen as a as a pivotal crossroads routes into the Donbass resupply routes and Solodar, the gateway to, to Bakhmut. Solodar is about 7Ks northeast of Bakhmut. Um, the head of private military yeah, mercenary group, Wagner, the Wagner group, Yevgeny Prigozhin, he says that they have achieved the complete liberation, his words, liberation of Solodar and killed about 500 um, Ukrainian soldiers. But last night, uh, President Zelensky in his address said that, that that's ridiculous and fighting is still going on. I mean, there's, there is huge confusion here. As we said yesterday, it is it is unclear what's going on. Um, this will play into, I think why Prigozhin is saying that, will play into what we're going to talk about a little bit later, about the machinations, the palace intrigue in the Kremlin. But it's, it looks as if um, there's still a huge amount of fighting around around Solidar. And the, the last piece of news just to, to bring you, uh, we mentioned a couple of days ago about two British aid workers who have gone missing in the Donbass. This is Andrew Bagshaw, who's 48, and Christopher Parry, who's 28. Now, Wagner yesterday said that they have found the body of one of the aid workers and that uh, they didn't specify which one, but said that the, the body 
was uh, was holding documents for both Britons. So Wagner's statement said, quote, today the body of one of them was found. Documents for both Britons were discovered with him. So no further details of uh, of the, the individual, uh, no external, no independent verification of that. But um, I mean, we've said that the these two uh, individuals have not been seen since, I think, January the 6th. Um, and and concern has been this huge concern for their for their welfare and where where they are. Uh, so this is this is a, a troubling turn of events, but no independent verification yet on the um, uh, on that on the body or the documents that has allegedly been found. Well, thanks, Dom. Let's go into the first then of of our two deep dives. That I think we need to do a little bit more on today. This being the issue of tanks, and we spoke obviously at length about this yesterday, and. Is it fair to say, and I I totally acknowledge what you're saying and agree with you, that we're absolutely right to urge caution here, that the wording coming out from Number 10 Downing Street is not saying that tanks are imminently about to be deployed. But am I right in saying that it does now start to feel like it's only a matter of time? The wording there is is so suggestive that they want to send them. And we've heard, as I said yesterday, across numerous capitals now, um, particularly uh, Berlin and from Paris, that they also are wanting to send these tanks. It is only a matter of time now, isn't it? And we're only in a question of of when that happens and who is the first out of the gate, as it were. Yeah, I mean, it feels like that. It is moving in that direction. And we spoke yesterday about we were surprised that there's no one seizing the sort of first mover diplomatic advantage. And I just actually wonder, you know, maybe, well, it's always going to be more complex than that, of, of course. I, I wonder if they're trying to, if there's behind the scenes, there's some effort to have a a united sort of international tank brigade, maybe, even though the different natures of tanks don't necessarily lend themselves to working exactly with each other because of different logistic trails and maintenance schedules and so on and so forth. But I just wonder if instead of thinking about this, about, oh, who's going to jump first? I wonder if they're, they're trying to put all the pieces together to to create a united front and say that, that they're going in in, in, in a larger group and of course that hinges on like i say or the logistic tail the 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 industrial the industrial tail behind these things and of course the physical movement of this thing i mean you've got to you've got to move them we would have to move them from from uk down to the port unlikely that they'd go um through the tunnel so they'd go by by ship over to uh, mainland europe and it all takes time so all these things are are uh, will take time to uh, to all these plans would take time to develop, and I just wonder if rather than kind of go off half cocked and one one country say yeah we're we're going to do it and we're going to do it on the fifteenth or or what have you, I wonder if they're trying to put together a more coherent plan. And so all the signalling we're getting, so for example, yesterday from Poland saying they are happy to send their Leopard twos waiting for Germany, signalling today from Germany, yes they 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 don't think they should stand in the way. The comments we've seen, we've we've just said from the number ten um, spokesperson. So I think I think maybe they're all sort of inching to the start line. Um, some at a greater pace than others. I just I just I'm getting the feeling that we're that it's not going to be uh, one one country then says right. I'm off. Follow me if you like. You know, I don't think it's going to be like that potentially. Um, but as you can tell, I'm mass- massively hedging my bets. Now, having said that, I mean the, we've talked about the the issue here is. Is it escalatory? Is it too provocative? And and you know it kind of that, that sort of that argument that that played out months ago. Remember with Miggate, Poland offering to send Mig twenty nines to Ukraine, um, which seemed to be stymied by the US. Um, I mean we've we've had this discussion about what it, where the lines are between offensive and defensive weapons and and so on and so forth. And and I think a lot of the a lot of the arguments are baked in now, and a lot of the the potential pitfalls have been almost priced in. They kind of 
we know where we are. And if, in terms of tanks specifically, uh, sorry, just finish that point off. I mean, if you think about the, the effect that HIMARS has had on, on the battlefield. Now, I, I don't subscribe to the idea that there's a, a silver bullet, no pun intended, you know, one single individual capability that will then, you know, that's, that's the war done, lads. You know, just get a hold of that and, and, and we're all golden. I don't think that's the case. But HIMARS has had a dramatic effect on the battlefield. Um, and, and so I think equating equating the the effect that tanks could have it has the sting has somewhat been drawn from the argument about provo- provocation and escalation by the the input of of um things like high mars and air defense and the decision to send patriot and all these kind of d- things and i just wonder if um the us last friday committing 50 bradley infantry fighting vehicles to Ukraine, whether that was like a almost a gateway tank issue, if you, if you know what I mean. I mean, Bradley, 25 mil cannon, um, anti-tank uh, missiles, tow, uh, sorry, not tow, um, but anti-tank missiles. I mean, a hugely, hugely capable beast. Uh, it last went up against Soviet armor, or first went up against Soviet armor, I should say, in 1991 in the Gulf War, Operation Desert Storm, and performed admirably. I mean, very, very successful, and has been improved since, since then. So, I mean, take away the fact that without getting too doctrinally pure about the whole thing, the Bradley is not a tank. Um, debate for another time. Or we had that last week, didn't we? Um, but you know, the effect it brings to the battlefield, it can be, it, it should be viewed as a tank killer and a ground taker in the, in the combined arms um, form of the phrase. So I wonder if, if the US were there, were, were sort of leading again, putting Bradley out there, to, just to see what the reaction would be and whether that that has given other countries the uh, greater confidence to talk about main battle tanks uh, with a with a degree of certainty and so i just wonder if if we are edging towards the the start line of 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 somebody deciding to to jump or whether it's going to be a coalition the international the international coalition um to to uh, to say that they're all going in uh, as a one of course huge 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 logistical and industrial planning considerations to fall out behind all that but um yeah i think we are we are edging closer but i i, I just wonder if the delay is that there's going to be a more coherent response rather than an individual country i would echo all of that and of course we posited that idea yesterday knowing knowing less than we do now and i think there is further evidence um, in the last 24 hours that would be suggestive of that i think also you, you make a point there about how things have moved forward from where we were at the beginning of the war which again we touched on yesterday and i i mentioned to you off air and i thought i'd mention it today that i was speaking to a very senior journalist here at the telegraph and he was just talking about how for a whole generation who grew up in the Cold War, the idea of Western tanks fighting Soviet tanks, Russian tanks, was one that was genuinely feared. You know, this was something that people thought would be World War Three. And I just mentioned that because obviously that's, that's, that will not be the case if, if when Ukraine gets these tanks. It's a very, very different state of affairs. But I talk about it because of the cultural resonance that that image has. And I think it partially explains the anxiety about the delivery of tanks that we've seen throughout this war, that there's something embedded in the cultural memory of Europe that feels very anxious about the idea of sending tanks. But interestingly, there is no such cultural cultural reticence about HIMARS because, of course, we haven't seen those before. And as you say, Dom, correctly, the HIMARS are arguably much more significant than the tanks will be uh, in in terms of changing the character of the war or or, or would be, should I say, 
So I think it just speaks to, again, when we're thinking about this war, there's always a lot more factors in play than just the the data, the rationalism, the the analytics. It's also this idea of, of, of culture, of memory, and how all of that plays in and how different countries approach these issues so, so differently, as, of course, has been a central topic for us ever since the war began, of how Germany approaches this, how Britain approaches this, how America approaches this, how the Baltic states see Russia. So much nuance here, and it really, really matters when you get down to the gritty details. And so I, I, I echo everything you've said, and I do think that it's now pointing towards the possibility of there being some sort of coalition or agreement about how this is going to happen, rather than it being some sort of one snowball that triggers an avalanche. But Dom, let's now turn to the big issue of the day. And I think you're right with that this is the one that we should go into a little bit more detail on, which of course is the replacement of General Armageddon, um, Sergei Shrovkin. So am I right in saying, Dom, that this is perhaps the most significant battle that's going on at the moment is the internal battle within within Russia, between the Wagner group, between uh, the, 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 the various generals within, uh, within the Russian army and within, of course, the Kremlin itself? It feels like that there's a lot going on that we need to unpack here. Yeah, I think that's I think that's accurate. I think um, Solidar is the scene of you know, mass fighting between Russia and Ukraine. I think it's also the battlefield where the Russian Ministry of De- Ministry of Defense has taken on the sort of upstart, the Young Turks, the, the the Wagner Group, and sort of these private private companies and the other the other formations that make up the, the Russian military effort in Ukraine. So. What's happened is that uh, General Valery Gerasimov, who is in charge of the whole of the Russian armed forces, is now, we're told, in charge of the campaign in Ukraine. So question number one, how can he do both things? How can he run the entire armed forces as well as a a, a major war, um, no matter how they want to characterise it as a special military mess up or or what have you? So what what does that mean? How, How can he actually do it? Is he being set up as a fall guy? We we. Um, we think that he's somewhat out of favour with Putin and been sidelined for the last few months. Is he being set up here to fail, to carry the can for the operation? Or is he um, is he deemed such a strategic genius that he's able to do both, uh, shape, craft the future of the Russian armed forces as well as win a, win a, uh, win a war? Now, interestingly, Sorovkin is not sacked completely. He came in, you remember, in, in October. He took over from General Alexander Dvornikov, who was, who was known as the Syrian butcher. And here we have General Armageddon. And, you know, we, we, we sort of we don't buy into all these tropes. But um, each time this has happened, we've all kind of gone, oh, no, no, this is the guy who's going to win it for Russia. Oh, my God, it's General Armageddon. It's the Syrian butcher. You know, they've, they've, all, they've all come and gone, basically. Um, but Sorovkin has not been absolutely sacked like Dvornikov was. He was he was there from April to June. Um, Sorovkin is now one of three deputies, and his the two things that he did, Sorovkin, when he came in in October, was was firstly he he basically sort of stopped the bleeding, stopped the Russian force bleeding in Ukraine. He convinced Putin to uh, to get out of Herzon City and get across the river and preserve the combat power that was being chewed up down there so you know that was seen as a major um a major i wouldn't say win but a but a, a, de- a demonstration of great influence to be able to convince putin to uh, to actually uh, retreat 
And the second thing he did was start the air campaign. Now, maybe this was the maybe this was the deal that he cut with Putin, that he he said we should go after the civilian infrastructure, which, you know, major missile barrages, guided missiles, all the rest of it after Ukraine's civilian infrastructure. Now, that has shown not to work. That has not broken Ukraine's spirit. Um, they are they are still there, and and as the as the the people have kept going equally, so is the effort to get air defence in there, and that is that is increasing daily. So that air campaign has not worked. So do we see this as this change as born of failure or of of something else that's going on? And, I, and it's probably somewhere somewhere in the middle. But of course, if he's one of one of three deputies, we used to say in the, in the in the army that a deputy is only one bullet away from command, and in a very real sense, that is that is true. It's a bit glib, but it's you know it's pretty true. So. He can't have been that much of a failure because he could very, very easily be back in the in the top slot sometime soon. We just we just don't know. So he's not off the picture completely. And of course, don't forget on December the 31st, so only a couple of weeks ago, Putin personally decorated him for bravery and dedication to service. So it would have been a massive loss of faith for Putin for this guy to to have been to have been sacked. But what seems to be happening here is that the the um, old guard, if you like, the establishment, the 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 established security architecture in Moscow, in the Kremlin, has is reasserting itself. So, so Sergei Shoigu, who's the defence minister, and um, uh, Gerasimov, the head of the armed forces, they seem to have have uh, have reasserted themselves over Yevgeny Prigozhin and Ramzan Kadyrov, the, the Chechen leader. These, like I say, these the the grouping leaders of these other groupings. Prigozhin has been very clear. To anyone that will listen, that the that any any gains in Solidar are down to Wagner Group and Wagner Group only. He's claimed success; that's disputed, as we've said. But he's saying he's saying that that, that it is victory, and it's only down to Wagner. He's saying it's nothing to do with the rest of the Russian armed forces. Interestingly, yesterday the Kremlin publicly uh, denounced that and said, actually, no, no, there are Russian armed forces. There's the VDV, the airborne troops to the north and the south of, uh, of, the, of the town as well. So a very public sort of slapdown for Prigozhin. And then this move here, this sort of this replacement. And we know Prigozhin has been um, supportive of Sorovkin. So perhaps it was, it was deemed, so the, the, the MOD said, look, we need to, we need to reassert, our, reassert our power here. Uh, and, I, and I think, as you characterised it at the start, I think what we're seeing is, is, a, is a power play for the future uh, of, um, of the armed forces, or at least the army, uh, post, post-Ukraine. And what, what, so what should we expect? Well, if Sorovkin's still there in a very senior position, as one of the three deputies, I think the air campaign will still continue. Of course, remember a couple of days ago we spoke about the, the practicalities of that and how many missiles Russia physically has left, what we, what we think there is. Alexei Reznikov, Ukraine's defence minister, tweets quite regularly um, an update on their assessment of the numbers of Iskander missiles and, and KH-101s and, and all the rest of the air-launched cruise missiles. So that's a good one to keep an eye on, to see where they think the numbers are. Um, also, uh, we had, um, uh, as I said, I was in a briefing a couple of nights ago with a Western official who echoed that statement that, that these munitions are, are running out. Um, so how long the air campaign can continue for these pulses, these sort of week long, or sorry, seven day or 10 day pulses, sudden barrages. Um, they are getting the longer and longer gaps in between these. So how much longer that air campaign can continue, we don't know. But beyond that, even if the air campaign does carry on then this idea that Gerasimov's now there so he can he can allow the air campaign to carry on because Rovskin's going to look after that and he's going to come up with some other battle winning idea I mean I, I just find that somewhat fanciful they haven't got the the men or materiel they, they've not got huge number of forces there's talk of 
another round of mobilisation in the spring, but that will take months for those people to come online in any meaningful capacity because we're seeing, I think, now the results of the last mobilisation effort where very poorly trained, poorly equipped, mobilised soldiers are are just being chewed up um, in Ukraine. So I don't think that there's there's much else that Gerasimov can do. So has he been set up to fail? We don't know. But at the very least, as, as Mark Galliotti said, and we should be following him on Twitter, he's a very good, very good analyst there, Mark Galliotti. Um, he said that at the very least, this is a, a, a poison chalice for Gerasimov. Um, whether this will be um, the end of the infighting between the, the, the mercenary groups and the Chechens and the MOD, we don't know. But as I said at the start, shaking up the chain of command is is very very risky. Of course, you do it. I mean, it happens in the end. Of, it happens in every war. Monty at the end of the Second World War, Montgomery, he had to swap out a load of senior commanders when it was obvious that the Allies were going to win the Second World War. Some commanders were, should we say, less aggressive at, at, at sort of seeing the fight to the end because they they were trying to preserve lives. You know, very honourable, admirable thing to do, but still the fight needed to happen. Killing had to happen. Sacrifices had to be made. And and Monty was very swift in, in swapping out commanders who were who, who who weren't aggressive enough. So swapping out commanders, of course, is a time time and a place, but just if it's some sort of power play back in your in your capital, I think that's extremely dangerous. Um, one of my last jobs in the army, I worked for uh, General Mark Carlton Smith, who's recently retired, or about a year ago retired as the he was the head of the army. And he always used to say, the first thing you do as any military commander, get the C2 correct, the command and control, put the people, or at least know the shape of your force, who should be where, what kind of forces you need, who who needs to be where they, where they should be, what kind of um, elements should go into your headquarters and so on and so forth. Get that organisation correct and then go and fight the war. Because if you don't get that bit right, the C2, the command and control, then the rest of it just goes off half-cocked. And I think that's what we're seeing here, that they've never really got the C2 correct, the command and control. You may remember in the first few months of the war that there were, there were effectively four wars happening. There was a, a, an army a ground war in the north, one in the east, one in the south, and then the air force doing its own thing, and nobody was talking to the other forces. And it was only when Dvornikov was put in charge as an overall theatre commander that they had some kind of uh, cohesion and coordination between all these all these efforts. And arguably, by then it was it was too late. So they've never really got their command and control correct, and and fiddling about with it now might be the right thing to do because something has to happen. But if you're fiddling because it's more to do with internal power plays rather than in response to the enemy, i.e. Ukraine, then then I, I think I think this is going to be it's very, very difficult for them to turn the, the super tank around. I think that's a really good point that there's obviously a lot of speculation around whether this is a, a wise move, whether this is a, a yeah, and, and speaks to the fact that we were just saying that actually for all of Russia's faults, if a, if a general is failing, then they move on and try and find someone who can. But I think the other way, which you've just articulated really well of, of viewing this is actually that it, it does speak they've never got their ducks in a row as it were they've never been able to actually have an effective structure and they're paying the price for that and that rather this bit than this being seen as as a moment perhaps of decisiveness and strength before perhaps some kind of renewed offensive that of course is highly speculated um, that actually it's the opposite this this just shows how much there is in it, things are in disarray i think one other thing that plays into this we talked obviously a lot about the mercenary groups recently indeed wagner are in many ways the the, the force that everyone's eyes are on apart from in Russia and I wanted to emphasise this point which is that if you watch Russian media the Wagner group is not talked about 
really at all. And it hasn't been for, for several weeks and months now. Or at least nowhere near on the same in the same level as it were earlier on, and and that I think does speak to a central problem here, which is that from the Kremlin's point of view, there is perhaps a threat posed by the Wagner Group, or at the very least, they don't like the idea of them defining what this war looks like and and being the face of this war. Now, one can speculate for all of the different uh, reasons for that, but nonetheless, I think it's important to emphasise that fact that in Russia itself, the propaganda is not pushing out a lot of the Wagner Group. We are talking; we're the ones talking about that. Because because of how proactive they are. And as we talked about yesterday and alluded to today, that slapdown by the Kremlin of of the analysis by Wagner of saying that they've already taken territory is, I think, really, really suggestive of just quite how serious those tensions are. You know, Russia is desperate for some kind of military or symbolic victory. And the fact that they've slapped one down or a potential one down by the Wagner group shows how serious I think they take that that question of, of internal struggle. Dom, you've already talked about how this shift in leadership may change the strategy of the war or not. I just wondered what your general thoughts are before we turn to just a few diplomatic updates on the future direction of travel of the war in the next sort of month, few months. Because, as you say, there's been some speculation about a renewed uh, offensive from the Russians, but there's some big question marks about whether they're actually capable of that. There's also similar conversations about whether Ukraine will be launching an offensive. Just wondered what your general perspective is as, this mo- as of this moment as to where we can be expecting things to turn in the next few weeks. Yeah, OK. So, I mean, I think, Right now, we have to focus on Solzhen Bakhmut, not only for the for the palace intrigue that we've just been discussing, but of course, if now that Prigozhin has, has well, he's claimed victory in Solzhen, although it is massively disputed, but he, he's gone all in. He's gone all in on Solzhen, and if anything less than a total victory there now, I think would be existential for for the Wagner Group as a as a force. And um, as I said the other day, the, the the Western official brief that I was in was suggesting that actually in terms of the ground forces doing the fighting in Ukraine, Wagner make up about a quarter of those. That's not the reserves. That's not any mobilized people coming down the tracks. That's that's those in theatre fighting now. But, you know, still a huge number. And if, if Wagner are exhausted, even if they take Solidar, you know, there's no suggestion that they're then just going to roll down the road into Bakhmut and then go through there to Kramatorsk and all the rest of it. I mean, they, they are exhausted. Um, and so I, I, I don't think we can expect much from from Russia in the near future because they just they don't have the combat power and they don't have the combined arms. So all the different bits working together, the infantry and the armor, the engineers and the air defense and all the rest of it, all, all working together. I just don't think don't think they've got it. Um, we think the airborne forces, Russian airborne forces, were moved out of Herzon when they came across the river back in September, and uh, and were pushed up into the centre and around Bakhmut. Now they're a, they're a capable force, but you know they've not really pushed forward. Um, so I don't see anything from Russia to suggest that they're able to launch some massive uh, massive counterstrike. Now, of course, the big unknown here is Ukrainian combat power. They've been very very cautious. Uh, at, at revealing any casualty figures of personnel or equipment in the last, uh, well, 10 months since this phase of the war has been, been on. And f- that's for very good operational security reasons. You know, you can't, can't really blame them as much as we'd like to know. Can't really blame them for uh, for keeping Sturm on those on those figures. But, you know, as much as Russia's not been able to push forward, equally so, kind of same for, for Ukraine. They had that massive advance um, last autumn uh, east of Kharkiv. And they've, they've 
you know, we can't say that what happened in Hezon was a was a um, was a Ukrainian advance per se. It was because of Ukrainian pressure that Russia then decided, I think, Russia decided to, to get out of there and try and preserve combat power. But, you know, it's difficult to see Ukraine right now putting anything together in any anything larger than than a sort of defensive albeit brigade and division also big formations lots and lots of, of fighters but putting together some some big armored thrust whether they're able to come the spring whether they're able to as and when they are uh, gifted more equipment um, i think they will be in a in a better verging good uh, position then because they've shown their ability to take on board new capabilities and, and adapt to them and train people and of course they've got the willingness and they've got the they've got the motivation um, but at the moment I think all we can all we're seeing from them is is a uh, is the ability to hold ground now I I say, I've been saying for I'm happy to put my hand up here I, I, I thought they might be able to put something together um, in the in the when the ground freezes in Ukraine, there might be all that. I was surprised by the number of Humvees, the um, the American high mobility multi-purpose wheel vehicles um, that have been gifted over the months. I mean, now up into the the high triple figure uh, of of units of vehicles, and I've I'm surprised that they that they weren't they, they haven't put something together. Now maybe that's because they haven't got all the other supporting arms, but it just suggests that actually there is. There is it's close to stalemate at the moment in the front, um, so I don't think there's going to be much much of a change in the next few weeks. I think until these other capabilities start coming online, and I think tanks are central to that. I think it will be it will be fairly fairly static. Well, thank you, Dom. Uh, before we end, I just wanted to whiz through a few political updates as well, because it's been quite eventful in this space as well. So sticking with Russia first, I was struck by an outburst by Putin yesterday, which plays actually into some of the internal tensions that we've just been referring to. It was on a video conference call with, with his top government ministers, and he shouted really at the deputy prime minister uh, saying that he was fooling around after criticizing him for not ordering enough military and civilian aircraft now it's very rare seeing putin angry and 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 behaving in this way it has to be said he's usually got this uh, demeanor of being rather cool and unflappable but it does give a sense that there may be a, a real profound frustration at the progress of the war at the moment he asked him will there when will there be contracts directors have told me that they have no contracts he raised his voice he said why are you fooling around as i say now this was towards um denis mantarov i should say he was one of the uh, the the deputy uh deputy prime minister and it was after he was delivering this this report and putin was just looking distracted unimpressed fidgeting making notes and then delivering this this rare rare rebuke where he was sort of cutting off uh, Mr. Mantrov, who who kept trying to sort of defend himself and, and Putin sort of shot back and saying, you're not trying hard enough. You need to get this sorted out in the next month. So, uh, you know, we, we have seen some instances of this kind of behaviour from Putin before. Remember at that very beginning public security briefing about what whether to invade Ukraine or not. Um, that was an example of where we saw this. But I think this felt a little bit more spontaneous rather than staged to me. So just something to... To, to, to reference because it may speak to just some of these tensions, as I say. Now, of course, there are tensions within the Western Alliance, true uh, as well, and not just over the delivery of tanks. Zelensky today has urged NATO to do more than just promise that Ukraine 
the door is open for Ukraine uh, as 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 a future member, saying that Kyiv needs powerful steps uh, as, as as it tries to join the military alliance. It doesn't just want this sort of hypothetical one day it will join NATO. It wants to know exactly how and when and what the criteria for that to be the case are. The EU have said that it's preparing for a long war and will support Kyiv for as long as it takes. But there is some frustration coming from an EU official so that Greece and Malta are lagging behind their EU peers in freezing Russian assets. So a little bit of uh, anger there expressed in an internal document and discussed, as I say, by an EU official. There's also a story doing the rounds this morning in Germany, and we've reported on it as well, as has of certain other newspapers, about a former activist for the German Green Party who's gained uh, over 200,000 followers by spreading Russian propaganda as a self-styled war reporter based in the Donbass region. Uh, This uh, lady, Alina Lip, uh, gives her followers what claims to be the truth about what's going on in Russian-occupied regions. But in fact, it's really peddling the same kind of lines that we've been discussing at length for months now, uh, saying that the start of the invasion was the beginning of the denazification and claimed that Ukraine was carrying out a genocide in the Donbass. So I only mention this, of course, there's only one person, uh, but I mention it because rightly or wrongly, it's being discussed as indicative of broader concerns about Germany's reliability on these matters. There's been some speculation that the Ukrainians did not tell Britain and America quite how prepared, well prepared they were for an invasion back in February for fear that it would be passed on to the Russians by a rather leaky German intelligence service. And indeed, a German double agent is feared to have leaked British intelligence report about the invasion to the Kremlin. That was uh, a story that we reported just around Christmas time. But I mention it again now because I'm not sure if we touched on it in the podcast. Apparently, UK spy chiefs were incensed by claims that top secret files were shared by a suspect named only as Carsten L, who had a senior role in Germany's foreign intelligence agency so again i don't i'm not trying to sort of swipe at germany here i mention this because these are the kind of conversations that are happening at about a high level about the trustworthiness of of certain political parties in germany and so it take all it takes is one individual to be seeing as as being a useful idiot if perhaps that's the the, the way of referring to it and it, it just seems to play into other anxieties and of course that's relevant when senior diplomats senior politicians are talking about that country it's not a good look as it were For all that, though, there was an interesting poll in Politico that said that an overwhelming majority of EU citizens back the bloc's continued support for Ukraine. Uh, 74% answered yes, that they approved of the bloc's position in supporting Ukraine, with a third saying that they strongly uh, approved. Sorry, Almost as many, 73%, said they agreed with the EU's financial, military and humanitarian aid to Ukraine, as well as the sanctions against Russia. And uh, interestingly as well, there's some they sort of broke it down by country too. the war is most the support that the EU is offering is most popular in the Nordic countries. That won't come as a surprise. Also, the Netherlands, Ireland and Portugal, where it's approved by more than 90 percent of the population. Extraordinary figures. Then on the other hand, at the end of the spectrum, you have less than half of respondents in Greece, Slovakia, Bulgaria and Cyprus have said that they've approved of the EU's actions towards Ukraine. And I'm not going to go into all the reasons as to why that may be, but nonetheless. I think the broad 
picture is is just the nature of sustained support for uh, for among the EU nations for supporting Ukraine, which, as you remember, if you think back several months now, we were not certain whether that would be the case over this winter for all the anxieties about the, the cost of energy and, and the war fatigue. So this is a significant moment and one I think it's right that we mark. This was a poll, I should say, of over 26,000 people. So it's not just a few hundred in, in each of these countries. It's it, This is a sizable, sizable sample that was conducted between October and November. And um, just largely, broadly speaking, I think it's fair to say that the United States also remains committed to Ukraine's struggle. Although I do note a poll that was conducted by CBS and YouGov that was released today that says that a majority of Republicans would want their member of Congress to oppose aid funding for Ukraine. So 52% of Republicans want their Congress member, apparently, according to this poll, to oppose further funding. And it also comes off the back of there being some concessions granted to the ultra conservatives. That's not my term, but that's what people are dubbing this group who sought to block Kevin McCarthy's appointment as speaker. That one of the concessions was him saying that they would not agree to these kind of blank checks to Ukraine. Now, I know that we have a lot of American listeners and indeed registered Republicans, too, who would balk at what I've just said and would disagree and would perhaps question the the polling. And I don't wish to suggest in any way that it's a majority opinion what this poll has has said. But I only mention it, as I say, because it's enough of a concern to be worthy of comment when the Speaker's position in the House of Representatives has been weakened, or at least he's slightly hamstrung because of of, of his of there being a narrow control of, of of the House. So, of course, for the Ukrainian perspective, they're thinking long, long term here. This could be a long war, and their anxiety is that what it would mean if there were a Republican president and whether that support of Ukraine would be as robust. So, anyway, that's the diplomatic picture in the last twenty four hours. As I say, Dom, any final thoughts from you before before we end? Well, my final thought would be we've got to keep an eye on Solidar because, as I say, Prigozhin's gone all in. And I think this this is, as I said, existential for for the influence of the Wagner Group. And the reason I say that is because Putin, it's been suggested, I don't think it's unreasonable to, to think that he's in the back of his mind. He's got an escape plan um, if it all goes bendy. And if he had to... Uh, rush off somewhere, then it would be the Wagner Group that would that would provide him security f- till the end of his days. So I think what happens to Wagner in Ukraine uh, and for their business model of being able to export security around the world, um, which is what they've been doing up up to now, really, then I think that's going to be that's going to be very interesting, and we'll have we'll have a very long shadow. Dr. Jade McGlynn is a specialist in Russian media, memory, and foreign policy. Further to her work at the Department of War Studies at King's College London, she's a regular contributor to The Telegraph on the internal picture within Russia. Last week, I spoke to her about the historical myths Putin uses to legitimise the war, how Russian propaganda works and doesn't work, and the ways the war is tied up with Russian national identity. This is our conversation. Jade, you're an expert on Putin's use of historical myths to legitimise and explain this war. What, in your view, is Putin's vision of history? I think it's a very presentist vision. So it's a vision that's defined by what he wants to see now as much as what he believes happened in the past. So any history that can be used to support the notion that Russia is a great state, that Russia needs a strong state, of course, And also that Russia has some sort of mission, you know, that Russia has a right over other countries. It has this special path. It's different from the West. 
And so what we see is a real ragtag of sort of amalgamation or melange of, of history used. So that some of that will be um, you know, Imperial Tsarist officer uniforms, and they'll be standing behind a Soviet flag. And it seems very confusing and almost, you know, slightly schizophrenic when, if you look at it from a historical point of view. But actually, if you start to think of it in terms of what message is Putin using the past to tell about Russia today, it makes quite a lot of sense. Yeah, and that's really interesting. And in terms of Peter the Great, then, where does he fit into this? I mean, that's a classic example, isn't it, of somebody where he's picking and choosing. But I thought it was very interesting that he's picked on him in particular as, as somebody he's, in this sense anyway, trying to echo. Yes, I thought the comparison with Peter the Great was quite complimentary to himself, <laughs> but he's in... Um, given given some of Peter the Great's achievements. The main issue there, I think, is that Putin is trying to say that Peter the Great reclaimed lands that were that were Russian. Um, of course that's that's I mean, it's historically illiterate, but really this isn't the important thing isn't the history, it's not the story, it's sort of how the story is being told, I think, in these cases. And that's what he's trying to say that he's done with these territories. And we see that even now. He refuses to have negotiations unless um, Zelensky, the Ukrainian side, recognise these um, Crimea plus these four four territories that, that he says Russia has annexed. But, you know, some of which he's, they've never had control over and, and much of which they've now lost control over. Famously, Tolstoy had a vision of history that was very collectivist in a way, that the forces of history, the engines of history were the people and that those at the top were the mere instruments of history itself. I don't think Putin would agree with that. He's much more ascribing to the traditional great man of history viewpoint. But I just wonder what your reflections were on that comparison and, and whether you think actually that maybe Putin is a product of what the Russian people want. OK, so... A um, lot to unpack there. Yes, you're quite right. Tolstoy has this idea of almost the forces of history move men and he uses, that's basically how he tells war and peace. And that's what General Kutuzov does, it sort of gives in to these structural forces. In terms of, I, I do think that Putin is a reflection of what Russians want. I don't think, I mean, it wouldn't be correct to have called him a dictator until until recently. And I actually think his use of history which in many ways, yes, it is about the great men, but it is also about, there's something a bit Marxist about it, I find sometimes a bit teleological, and no doubt that must be influenced, um, because it's not just Putin's view of history, it's a lot of sort of Russians of a certain generation, i.e. that generation that were schooled in Marxist Leninist thought, however much they maybe, some did and some didn't pay attention to it. Of course, these things leave their traces. And you do have this quite teleological idea that that history is going to repeat itself, um, or that history that history is repeating itself. That there's something circuitous or circular about history as well. This comes up quite a lot. And this idea that, for example, Russia is now refighting World War Two. I mean, this, of course, it is partly propaganda, but it is. I think there's more to it than that. I think there's also this kind of uh, collapse, temporal collapse, this collapse of time between between the past and the present. And I think. Um, that to many Russians that appealed firstly because the history, particularly the history of World War II or what they call the Great Patriotic War, gave people something to feel proud of after what was a really grim first decade after the Soviet Union where many, many people felt ashamed to be Russian, felt that it had negative connotations and the memory of World War II and its cultural role helped, I think, to create a sense of national identity for post-Soviet Russia but also the idea that, you know what, there's a nice Russian phrase like yes, chem like there is something to be proud of. 
And just picking up on something you said there, which is that perhaps this idea that Putin is the kind of leader that Russian people want. I mean, that's a big, big statement, given that there's, of course, many opposition figures in Russia, those perhaps admittedly who are more aligned to Western education, Western language, Western culture. Surely as well, there's a side of this, which is that you know, Putin has deliberately and violently usurped power over a strong period of time. And I just wondered what your sense was is, you know, if we were to be saying, like, to what extent is he the product of Russian history up to this point? Or to what extent has he manipulated and distorted Russian history and the Russian state in order to achieve what he, he, he currently has in terms of his sort of grip on power? I think this is the big question about the Putin regime. And um, admittedly, I answered your question in a rather simplistic fashion. But really, the question is always, is this top down or is this bottom up? I, you know, is, is Putin imposing it or actually the Russian people want this? And like all big questions the answer is all a bit of both (laughs) which is entirely unsatisfactory i appreciate but it is a bit of both so often what we've some of my research for example looked into a lot of the sort of popular clubs around patriotic history that are used to or some might say indoctrinate um some might say educate um young children and if you looked at them a lot of them were set up by teachers who themselves had attended such clubs in the Soviet Union and so they were sort of just making stuff you know making clubs for children but then the state noticed their popularity it sort of came in and started to take over or give funding and then direct um the the sort of the activities of these clubs and so that's what's been quite interesting is the way that you're quite right that quite cleverly actually the and it's not just Putin you know it's it's often on the local level the government has been able to, to almost take over civil society or take over what what we might call even just society and bend it to its needs. So it's very careful to work out what people want to hear and then it tells them that, but it also adds a little bit on to sort of force force it more in the direction that they want it to be. And, and often Russians have no idea that some of these, um, gra- what they perceive to be grassroots initiatives are actually completely controlled by the state. Well, this seems like a good moment to come to the next subject, which is, of course, Russian propaganda, which I know you're also an expert on. So in what ways does the propaganda work effectively in Russia and perhaps some ways where it doesn't work as effectively? I was very struck by some of those polls that we've seen recently that indeed you've written about for us in the paper um, that are less positive towards the uh, war in Ukraine than perhaps one might expect, given the scale of the propaganda. So just wondered what your reflections were on that. Propaganda works, but it doesn't necessarily work in the way that perhaps we in the West think it does. Um, So there's a tendency to think that people just get brainwashed. And as we've just been discussing, often people might quite like um, what what their brains are being washed with. I suppose I want to take the metaphor too far, but Russian TV, it's funded by advertising still, most of it, the vast majority of it. So these people, they have to provide something entertaining that a certain audience want to watch. Of course, younger people... Um, don't necessarily watch well they don't watch tv anywhere near as much although to look at the top 20 political telegram channels i think 16 of them are quite virulently pro-war so it's not necessarily that everybody's going online and reading you know medusa or or nova gazeta so there's that aspect as well that is telling people a little bit what they want to hear and then probably and then of course packaging alongside that lots of things um you know that, that that serve the that serve the regime in terms of how the propaganda's changed, one thing is I think it's been quite heavy-handed and it's been very ham-fisted. So certainly the area that, that sort of my PhD was almost on sort of 2014 to, to 2018, 
as Putin's third term. And there you could see that actually sometimes, of course, it was hand-fisted, but a lot of the time it was it was more subtle. It was more about initiatives, about taking over civil society, about making sure that, that things were threaded into popular culture. So it wasn't always just so obviously shouting in people's faces. I mean, you always had that aspect, but there was lots more, whereas increasingly it just feels like hours of shouting in people's faces, we have to go and kill the fascists. And I think that a lot of the propaganda is being levied by people who are either complete cynics or people who are true believers. And neither of those are really reflective of the Russian people who do support the war because they support the war in the sense that they tend to sort of agree, consent to it or acquiesce to it. Nobody really loves the war. I mean, very few people do. And I think the that Putin is, it seems to me, is listening to and receiving information from people who think that the Russian people are going to rise up as if it's 1941 and, and the Nazis are tearing through Belarus. But, but it's not 1941 and, and they're not going to do that. I think you've also just touched on something there that's also extremely important, is that when we talk about the Russian people, one really has to break that down by age, by geography. And I was interested by something that you said there in terms of the difference between you know, television viewing habits by age, you know, that younger people have different sources. And as you say, there's, there's, there's worrying signs that actually they're still consuming very pro-war material. But I just wondered what your general feeling was about the extent to which Western interpretations of the war are bleeding into Russia and perhaps young people are or aren't the source of that? Or, or do you think it actually, for all of the permeability of, of, of borders in our globalised world, that actually people are still living in very siloed visions of communication? It sounds really an unusual thing to say, given the conditions in Russia, but actually the media landscape it can be quite diverse in its way, provided that we're not talking about diverse, oh, I happen to really love Anglo-Saxons, <laughs> as they tend to call the, the UK and the US. So what I mean by that is there can be people who are critical of the MOD, who are real sort of nationalists, but also, I mean, some of the more popular channels that are against the war, they're against the war for reasons that are certainly not pro-Western. And I think that's the issue, is a lot of people, to be honest with you, even policymakers, that I speak to here in the in the UK and and in other countries, they seem to think that the youth is just like the young people that maybe they've met or maybe they know from from Moscow. These real elites who've maybe been educated in London, um, but these people are really the not even the one percent, the sort of 0.5, maybe even the 0.1 percent. These people are not. I would love it if these people were reflective of all of Russian society because it would give me a lot more hope about the idea, well, firstly, that I could go back to Russia soon um, or, you know, that Russia will become a democratic country or that there's this force that might, uh, you know, pressure uh, Putin to, to, to make Russians leave Ukraine. But this is not going to happen. And I think if people don't, it's really important that people don't, don't, believe in that don't buy into that because that's not they're not a force and the, the people who were there and that's not to dismiss those people who are pursuing i think they're incredibly brave i have only the utmost admiration for them but a lot of them have had to leave because you know you can't practice journalism you can't practice activism and quite understandably they didn't want to spend their 20s or their 30s you know in in a jail somewhere in tuman like that's completely understandable and so that we come to the million dollar question then, which is, is how does this war end? I mean, how how do Russia see or, or what is the pathway for Russians, ordinary Russians to see that this war 
is not worth it and arguably is not actually able to be won in the way that Russia, that Putin continues to to talk about that these kind of absolute victory is is sort of a, a, a fantasy and so what what would your advice be to those who may be listening who are trying to change how we approach this war what's what's the the, the, the end game it's very difficult and in general I do think that it's not a good idea to, to I think I wrote about this in, in my last piece um for the for, for, for the Telegraph that it's not a good idea to really try to defeat Putin or to try to defeat Russia because we certainly just don't have the expertise there in terms of our communication strategies or in terms of getting those sort of communications, those messages to to the Russian population and, and tweaking them, we won't be able to influence that much. What we can do is we can help Ukraine to win. And I think it's much better that we focus on that because there's a clear plan, at least to a certain extent, of, of getting at least a partial victory um, for Ukraine. Obviously, hopefully, go beyond that, but, but then we get outside of clear plans. I think... The best thing to do is to just try to contain Russia, you know, a bit like with the Soviet Union, and to make sure that we have as little dealings um, with Russia as possible. And you can't imagine how sad it makes me to say this, because obviously I've, you know, spent 20 years studying in Russia, and I don't want to be saying this. And I, I do, I don't agree with any of these sort of, I wouldn't criticize the post-Soviet, the countries that were in the Soviet Union who apply them, because I understand they've had very traumatic pasts with Russia. But I don't think we should be banning those Russians who want to leave, if only because they're people who can't be mobilized or people who aren't paying, um, you know, the Russian state and, and funding its war. So I don't think that, you know, this isn't all, not all Russians are to blame, um, even if this is much more than just Putin's war. Um, it's a difficult one. Critics of that view, though, would say that there will never be change in Russia if those who want to see that change are, are able to leave, though. I, I mean, I, I have some sympathy, but if those people are at the point where they want to leave, and to be honest with you, those people are not representative, what you need is a complete shift, a complete mindset shift among the sort of more rural or certainly more provincial areas um, where Putin has a lot of support. And you kind of need to deal with Putin is the symptom as much as anything else. Now, I mean, he's obviously become the cause of, of, of several other problems with, with the start of the war and with, with certain other actions. But to a certain extent, he is, he will always, uh, you know, I will always see him as, as a symptom of of a mindset and of a vision of Russianness that, that took place and that he encouraged, but then people also bought into. So yes, Putin's the salesman, but actually people people went there to buy. People went to the shop as it were. Well, I think until that's dealt with, you won't really have a peaceful Russia. So your answer for, for dealing with that is is to give the Ukrainians the support that they need to win militarily, to contain Russia economically and politically on the world stage. And in that, you and I certainly um, agree. In order to have that internal cultural shift, and this is the problem that I try and grapple with sometimes on the podcast as well, is how, how can one do that without turning the people even more fiercely against the West? Because, of course, if you, uh, you can't. So, so, you know, that are we in a situation here where actually... It, 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 you are reliant on there to be another kind of Gorbachev type figure to come up through the middle one day from some from somewhere who is able to change things because power is so centralized that whilst the people themselves are, of course, 
as you were saying, like they want somebody like a like a Putin. It, it is not impossible that somebody might come along who actually has a more, um, I suppose we would say, sensible, pragmatic approach on these matters. And it's how do we bring that kind of person into the fold? And how do we do so in a way that makes the people willing to stomach that? And that's the question that we don't think we've necessarily got a solution to yet. I don't think there is a solution and I'm not sure it's a good idea for us to try anyway because bluntly if you look back to 1999, 2000, I mean everybody, well maybe not everybody, I'm such a geek, I think everybody, probably just me, can remember sort of, you know, Tony Blair's very warm words um, about Vladimir Putin. Um, You know, of course everybody actually I think does remember the the weird comments on the White House lawn about um, being able to, about Putin having a nice soul or his eyes from, from George W. Bush. So it's not um, you know, we we very much courted Putin, and one of the interesting things I think sometimes we have a very rose-tinted view of of our own country's involvement in helping some of these situations in in Russia, and that's something obviously I write about a lot because it sometimes annoys me that that politicians will sit there and criticise Russians who who have risked their lives, their health in protesting, but actually, you know, those same politicians may have you know taken money from from Kremlin-linked elites and and so on. But um, without going too much down that route, because there's too much to say there, my whole point would just be a quick, a very quick anecdote, well, not anecdote, but like story. In 1996, the West sent over loads of political technologists to help Yeltsin win an election that, I mean, he was polling in the single figures. He was going to lose that election to the communists, as Zhivanov. And a lot of these political technologists, they, of course, they trained the Russians. And then these political technologists helped Putin with his election in 2000. And then they went and they helped Yanukovych um, with the Orange Revolution in, in 2004. And since then, they've been Russia's sort of go-to men in Ukraine, sort of helping. They've had their strategies. Clearly, those strategies have failed. That's ultimately what, what led to the, the invasion is Russia was unable to control Ukraine through, through non-military means, even with its occupation of, of Donetsk and Luhansk and Crimea. If we look there, you know, this idea that this is something, okay, that, that's completely unconnected to the West, I think is not only unhelpful, but also a bit dangerous because a lot of the issues that we see in Russia, I think we see on a much smaller scale in the West. And I think that needs to be addressed as well. I think rather this idea of just like Russia is bad, we are good. How do we make, make, make Russia like us? Because then it will be good. And I know you've written for us about our complicity as well in terms of enabling oligarch money to be filtered through London and other major European cities. And that's, of course, been a major part of of how Putin has been able to build up his strength within Russia domestically as well. Um, just staying on, on the 90s, I think this is a really critical question, really, on the mistakes that were made. I mean, knowing what we know now, and yes, we tried to court Putin, do you think it was possible that the West could have had a strategy that was to say, we will not deal with you unless you go down the sort of democratic path proper. You know, when we saw that the oligarchs were as corrupt and as sort of violent driven former KGB men, was there a way in which we could have said, well, fine, you go your own way, but we're out? Or do you think actually that there was really no way in which we could have built a Russia that we would have said was more Western and more liberal? I think in some ways we did the worst of all possible worlds with the 90s and because we were a bit involved. We had a bit of money, just enough that we could kind of be blamed, <laughs> but, but not in, you know, when it all inevitably was stolen and went into this or that. 
um, but not enough that actually it really did did too much, you know, in terms of helping. Which is why, in some ways, I think I was talking discussing this with with a think tanker the, the other day who's still in Moscow, and um, was, he was saying that um, because he happened to to sort of be around in the, in that time, and he said that he thinks it would have been better in a way if the West had not helped at all, because at least then it could have just said, "Well, this is your mess." Whereas now, the mess of the nineteen nineties is ascribed, you know, almost exclusively to Westerners. But actually, you know, it was Russians who, by and large, were stealing, um, you know, the vast majority of the money, including, of course, well, maybe I won't name names, so it doesn't get too litigious, but um, important people. <laughs> the broader point, I think, that, you're, that you make is, is an interesting one. But for me, it started before Putin. I think it started when we accepted that Yeltsin shelled the White House and that that was an appropriate way to deal with political opposition, however, uh, you know, annoying and, and, and extreme it might have been. Um, the Russian White House, um, of course. And it happened when we helped Yeltsin to completely... Um, steal isn't the, isn't the right word, but, you know, really manipulate um, the, election, the elections. And so I think we'd already been telling a blind eye, and the reason we did that is because we thought that Russia would never really be an important power again, similarly with Yugoslavia, when we just sort of dismissed um, the bombing of Yugoslavia in 1999, or rump Yugoslavia. Um, we just dismissed the idea that they could ever really be a big issue for us. It's sort of like, well, Russia's over, that's done now. And clearly, I think that was the strategic mistake, that and, I mean, and I definitely would say this, I'm completely biased, but that and completely divesting from, from research and expertise um, in the area. So before we end, because our time is almost up, is there anything, any subject that we haven't talked about in the last half an hour or so that you think we should talk about or perhaps something relating to this war that's not talked about enough by Western commentators? I think one thing that's not spoken about enough is actually the Russian, what has happened in terms of the Russian view of Ukrainians um, and how that became so, how quickly that changed and how easily the Ukrainians were demonised. And I think a lot of people sort of write this off as imperialism, but I think it's more than that. One of the things that really surprises me is speaking to friends who are very liberal and definitely very anti-regime, have not been in Russia for a very long time, but they still find it very hard to imagine that you know Ukraine is European, that Ukraine will join the EU, or to take Ukraine seriously. Um, and so I think the extent to which some of the support for the war in Ukraine is, is rooted um, in that sense of ownership, sometimes I think it gets forgotten, and I think perhaps that's one of the reasons why People maybe are not as sensitive um, to to Ukrainians' worries and to Ukrainians' own um, na very natural sensitivities from some people who who are anti-Putin, um, but may not necessarily be pro-Ukrainian. They're not the same thing. And do you think? I mean, this this shift away from Russia, or actually, perhaps that's actually an interesting question in itself. Is do you think there was a a shift away from Russia by the Ukrainian people in the years prior to the invasion, um, or do you think actually that that narrative itself is a bit um, uh, of an uncomfortable one? Because the fact is, is that the Ukrainians have been forced, you know, to subscribe to the the, the Russian view of the world for so long that this was the first moment where really they've been able to to to, to try and free themselves. But it seems that. Russia hasn't caught up with the fact that they're no longer dealing with the country they think they are. Yeah, so def Russia definitely hasn't caught up. That the July twenty twenty one essay, um, you know, at the at the time it was completely puzzling because he thought, what sort of intelligence is he getting that the, he thinks this narrative would appeal to Ukrainians? But the last time he was in Ukraine was twenty was June twenty thirteen. So you know, how would he know about about Ukraine? Um, 
or, or how it had changed since 2014. In terms of um, sort of, I mean, if we look at polls from, for example, from Kiev Mohila, um, which has some wonderful sociological studies, we see that after 2014, so after the annexation of Crimea and the war there, people still broadly had, um, in, in particularly in the Russian-speaking areas, had a sort of positive view of the Russian people, even though they really hated Putin, who was incredibly popular, actually, um, before before 2014. Um but after that, of course, he wasn't popular. The Kremlin wasn't popular. But Russian people, because, you know, about one in 10 Ukrainians have relatives in Russia. And I think that's another point. You know, Ru- Ukrainians, they, they don't need to be told about Russians from us. It would be a bit like a Russian who had never been to the UK or Ireland coming and telling maybe me, since since I'm half, um, you know, telling me about sort of Northern Ireland. I know more about it than you. Um, so there's that aspect as well. But then, of course, since 2021, sorry, since the full-scale invasion in 2022, there's attitudes have dramatically shifted. And I even know people who were not pro-Putin and certainly didn't want to be invaded, but sort of, um, they were sort of pro-Russian world, you know, they preferred Pushkin to, to Shevchenko, if we can put it that way. Um, but, of course, now, you know, refuse to even speak in Russian. Well, thank you very much, Jade. And uh, a disclaimer to our listeners that Jade and I speak quite often because you do write for us very often. So I would recommend that uh, that listeners look up uh, Jade's work on uh, for The Telegraph and elsewhere because it's always really fascinating. And of course, as we've been talking about today, what happens in Russia is going to be hugely relevant to the future trajectory of this war. And so I'm sure that we will we will talk again in the coming weeks and months. I hope so. Thank you, Francis. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk slash audio or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to the podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, do leave us a review as it really helps others to find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. We're especially interested, as ever, to hear where you're listening from around the world. You can also contact many of us on Twitter. Just send us a DM. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and today on Twitter, Claire Hubble. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. 
That's stamps.com code program.